0: Welcome to LiveWire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. I am backstage here at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, in my little tiny, I don't even want to call it dressing room. I don't get dressed in here. I just kind of hide from everybody before the show so I can get my thoughts together. We've got a great show coming up for you in a minute, by the way. We have Sloan Crosley, author of the really fun new novel called The Clasp. Uh, We've also got Laura Gibson here to play some music. And we've got Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse, who you may know from films, he also writes plays. And he's got a new book out called Bream Gives Me Hiccups. Now, I had talked to a friend who knew Jesse Eisenberg years ago, and I had been bugging him by email trying to get him on the show. And I had hoped he had forgotten about it but i just met him a minute ago and he said oh you're the guy who's been emailing me so i guess we're going to see how this goes it all gets started right now from PRI public radio international it's live recording in front of a live audience at the aladdin in Portland, Oregon. It's a special Wordstock edition of Livewire with actor and author Jesse Eisenberg, writer Sloan Crosley, and music from Laura Gibson
1: and our amazing house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he's considering a new career as the sassy one on The View, Luke!
0: All right, thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you uh, for coming out here to the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. Once again, we've got a show from the Wordstock Book Festival for you, including including guest Jesse Eisenberg, who will be out here. Now, a lot of people know Jesse from his uh, work in films, but he has also written a really funny new book called Bream Gives Me the Hiccups, Uh, He's here at Wordstock talking about that. And uh, we thought, in honor of of Jesse kind of expanding his uh, creative wings that way, that we would make the theme for this hour, changing lanes, right? Like, you know, when you sort of mix things up. I have been, uh, things in my life have been mixed up a bit lately. My wife and I, we moved. You don't know how that statement was going to end, and you just (laughs) cheered. Things have been mixed up for me. My wife and I, woo, are not doing great. At all. My wife and I uh, moved to a new town a couple of... Uh, some people are just cheering that someone agreed to marry me. And I, <laughs> I do appreciate that. Um, my wife and I moved to a, a new town a couple of months ago. And I do not know where anything is. And so I've set about a plan trying to kind of map things out by walking our dog on these super long walks every day. And so we go down these, like, forest trails and we look at all the different houses in the neighborhoods and we find all of the bars that will let you bring a dog inside. And we're sort of getting the lay of the land. And our dog is a two-year-old yellow lab named Rudy. And, um, and, and the thing about Rudy, uh, she's a girl, and she, I just mentioned that because she has sort of a, a boy name, but, and by the way, nobody cares the gender of your dog. <laughs> just me included, like, I'm always correcting people, and they're totally unimpressed with the fact that they were thinking it was a boy, but actually it's a girl. The thing about Rudy, our dog, is that she loses her mind with joy every time we encounter another dog on the walk. It is like she was in a dog version of that Matt Damon movie, The Martian, and she has just returned to Earth and is seeing her kind for the first time in years. Except this happens like 50 times, every walk, and she's equally excited with each encounter. So basically we go on a walk, we go about two feet, and she stops either because she's seen another dog or because maybe there was a Native American tribe in this part of the woods and they had a dog that peed on a fern like 300 years ago, and she is going to get to the bottom of that situation. So, On Thursday of this week, Rudy and I were walking, and we got to this little gravel trail that we always take, and she just stopped. She didn't want to go down it. And it was weird because there wasn't anything different. She just didn't feel right about it. And so what we had to do was we had to walk like a block out of our way and go onto the trail at a different point that didn't make her feel uncomfortable for some reason. And we did our walk, and we had a fun time. And I was thinking about it later, and I thought, if that was my wife or my kid who didn't want to go down that trail, I would be so mad. (laughs) I would have been angry for the entire walk at them because I had to go a block out of my way. And I definitely would have brought it up later in an argument. (laughs) Like, oh, yeah, I would fill the dishwasher more if I wasn't so busy taking the long way to the gravel trail like we always have to do. And it occurred to me that I need to learn how to cut the humans in my life the same amount of slack that I'm cutting this two-year-old yellow lab, right? Like, Because the humans in my life also get excited about things that I don't care about. That's fine. Sometimes they want to take their own route to things. That's also fine. Sometimes they want to smell pee on a fern. That's where the analogy starts to break down a little bit. Point is, I realized i got to start working on this. i got to be more okay with the humans in my life being who they are. So I'm going to start that right after this show, because we have some very specific plans for these guests, and if those plans get messed with, I'm going to be super mad. But right after that, I'm going to start being a better human. Speaking of our guests, let's get the first one out here. We're talking about changing lanes, and our first guest did exactly that with her new novel, The Clasp. Sloan Crosley's first two books, I Was Told There'd Be Cake and How Did You Get This Number, were collections of essays based on her real life. Now she's switched to fiction and created what the New York Times calls a shrewd exploration of the modern day late quarter life crisis. So that's a thing now. Please welcome Sloan Crosley to Livewire. This book, The Clasp, is really funny and really fun. As the New York Times mentions, it's sort of disguised as a caper book, but it gets into bigger issues about growing up and becoming an adult and finding out who your friends are and aren't going to be. Uh, For folks that haven't had a chance to read it, kind of lay it out. What happens in the book?
2: Okay, so basically it's a a bunch of friends, a big group of friends, who reunite about ten years after um, college at a wedding, an extravagant wedding in Miami and they're sort of, of varying degrees of kept in touch with each other and it's told from the point of view of three of them in particular two guys and a girl which was interesting writing mostly from the male perspective and one of them is this sort of sad sap kind of Eeyore-esque character <laughs> uh-huh. who um, who falls asleep a little bit drunk on the mother of the groom's bed and when he wakes up, she sort of slaps him awake and tells him this nutty story about a necklace that went missing during the Nazi occupation of France. And he becomes convinced it's the necklace that Guy de Montpassant based his famous short story, The Necklace, on, and thus starts an adventure where it goes from being this sort of navel-gazing comedy of manners to more something like The Goonies. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now that'll move some books. That'll
2: move some books. I know. I, when I first pitched it to my, um, my editor, I'm like, it's like the girl with the pearl earring, but funny. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know how that would work. I'm like, well, possession, but funny. He's like, still, still nothing's happening. <laughs> I,
0: think, I think I saw on an interview that, that you did where you talked about you actually wrote a novel right when you got out of college, but it was sort of terrible because you were too attached to the plot or something? Yeah. What does that mean?
2: Well, it means that I wrote it as a novella for my senior thesis, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to blow this up, like inject it the way some people do with their lips. With... <laughs>
0: so Because that always ends so well. I'm, well,
2: I'm trying to make it sound as unappealing as it actually is. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And so it sucked all the fun out of it because I knew... You have to know somewhat where you're going, but I knew exactly where I was going, so there were no surprises. Whereas with the class, I thought a certain set of people were going to get together at the end, and it turned out a different set of people got together at the end.
0: Well, how do you know that when you're writing um, a novel? How do you know when the characters are doing the right thing or not? Because you, you you know what I mean? Because like what I hear people who've written novels say is that the characters reveal themselves to the writer as well. And what the characters are going to do, it often is, it's occurring to the writer almost at the, you know, at the same time they're writing it down. How do you know when the characters are making the right decision or not?
2: Well, you start, I mean, how did you know, you just moved, you just bought a house, right? Yeah. Okay, so when you're buying a shower curtain for that house, are you like still questioning whether or not you should have bought the house or you're just looking at the shower curtain?
0: Well, this house has a lot of problems. So specific to this, (laughs) yes, a lot of questions about it.
2: I guess what I'm saying is eventually you build a world that you then have to sort of tend to and that they, you know, the problems or or that you have or like the, the choices that they make are now choices that are made within the umbrella of the world that you've built. So you just sort of keep on tending to it and then you sort of look in your rear view mirror and you're like oh my gosh they did all these things but they don't talk to me the way I know what you're talking about and I find it actually to tell you the truth a little pretentious when people <laughs> say like not you specifically you're lovely Thank you, Sloan. Thank you, slow. Thank you. But the idea of, oh, um, they just wrote for me, they wrote through me. I'm like, I know where they came from. <laughs> Here, my brain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy this process as opposed to mining your own life and your own experience? I love this process.
2: The, the, I mean, there were difficulties at first um, where, you know, with my own life, my own experience, if an observation or a joke or, or something sad or whatever it is, doesn't even have to be a joke, occurs to me, and it fits. I don't hold it back because it's all the same person. Um, but with this, you know, you have to make the characters sound different and you have to make people interested and you're sort of obliged to entertain them and to entertain yourself. And to do that, you have to sort of pull back you know, certain humor or certain things and, and create characters that you sort of love to hate and all that stuff.
0: We're talking to Sloan Crosley here on Livewire Radio. Her new book is The Clasp. We're going to talk more about that coming up after this very short break. Stay with us. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, makers of the Jarvis Standing Desk. And now, if you want a smaller footprint, but you still want the stability of a desk with some real substance, there's the Jarvis Jr., just as strong as its dad. But it takes up almost half the space, and it's adjustable at the touch of a button. So you can stand when you're feeling like the go-getter you are. And sit when you dang well please. Because you're an adult and you can make your own choices. The Jarvis Jr. Allowing the floor space challenged to stand prouder. Get more information at ergodepot.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast version of LiveWire. You know, we would not exist without you, the listener. Because what would be the point of doing this show if you guys weren't out there? taking notice of it look if you feel like livewire has brought something great into your life like maybe a band you love or an insight from one of our comics or our guests please consider becoming part of our league of extraordinary listeners membership starts at just 35 bucks a year and it comes with some great perks like members only content and members only jackets not the second one but the first one which is pretty cool Visit LivewireRadio.org to join today, and thank you so much. Welcome back to Livewire. We're coming to you from Portland, Oregon, the Aladdin Theater. It's another Wordstock show for us. We have author Sloane Crosley here. Her latest book is *The Clasp*. I want to read something that one of the great literary critics of our time, Noel Gallagher from the band Oasis, uh, said. He said. I only read factual books. I mean, novels are just a waste of bleeping time. I can't suspend belief in reality. I just end up thinking, this isn't bleeping true. I like reading about things that have actually happened. Do you have a response to that, as the author of a novel? (laughs) Because as much of a Philistine as it makes me, I kind of know what he's talking about. Like, when I read novels, I sometimes have a hard time staying with it, because it is just a thing that somebody came up with in their mind.
2: Uh, People forget... Um, what it's like to be read to, what it's like to bounce into fiction in a way that if you're not a lifelong reader, it's hard to pick back up. So you, you listen to different music over the course of your life, but you don't stop listening to music, or you don't stop looking at art, you don't stop doing these things. But there are people who, you know, read as a child or, or were read to as a child, and then they're like, a book reading, what? I don't want to go to that. <laughs> you know? Or I don't want to like dive into this other world. And if you're not used to it, it takes a while. I mean, I think it's probably like, if, you, if you're not used to running, you know, and then you get used to it. I mean, so I'm told, I've never run anywhere, but just, <laughs> <laughs> that you then, you know, it becomes easier, you know, two miles is nothing. Um, and I feel like there's something like that that happens with writing, with fiction specifically as well.
0: You worked in the publishing industry for a good while, as I mentioned earlier, has that informed how you behave as a writer because you used to have to manage writers, basically,
2: I mean I'm not drooling on this <laughs> microphone, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's informed a little bit. Um, I've tried to not let it inform me too much, um, because then you become too self conscious of sort of what the world thinks or the impression you're giving off, and it doesn't really matter, <laughs> so
0: really, yeah. but was it weird, like when you were both working in the industry and you had a project. I guess at that point it was probably, I was told there'd be cake. And you're like saying, hey, I know that I'm helping the writers here, but I'm also a writer and hey, I have this project. Did you feel like the waiter sliding the screenplay no. under the bathroom door to Robert De Niro?
2: I didn't. The first, but the um, I will tell you that it was a little bit strange because I took on my vacation to write and uh, go on book tour and things of this nature. So that was a little bit strange <laughs> and to, to call up you know, uh, a newspaper that will remain nameless and say, you know, will you cover this book and have them say, well, we have one slot, yours or the other one. And I'm like, oh, cool. So it's like a little Sophie's Choice every morning. That's awesome. Right. Either but the book I, you
0: wrote or the well, book you're yeah, getting paid Yeah, this is not what I promote. signed up
2: for. And I'm like, you know, I'm calling from a random house phone. This is awkward for everyone. But I just, um, so eventually it got it got to be too much. But well, I love my job.
0: Uh, you were outed this week, or maybe you outed yourself in the in the New York Times <laughs> as Sky Chatham, co-author of a hit book that came out in April called Read Bottom Up, which you secretly co-authored. Yeah. Why the secrecy?
2: Oh, I think you're missing the best part too. I did it under my porn star name.
0: Oh right, right. Yeah, that's uh, Sky, Sky was
2: Sky was my first my first pet, and Chatham was the street I grew up on. That's a good one, Sky Chatham. This is a world famous algorithm that everybody knows. But yeah, um, I did it because it was a. Uh... I grew
0: up on a numbered street, so like I was always Are left always out. Are you a New
2: York City child?
0: No, no, I, okay. I just from the bad part of Seattle.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: so I would have been uh, Goldie Seventy Seventh. See, actually. I guess that could kind of work. That's, That's not so... bad. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah,
2: a couple number blocks down, and you'd really hit the jackpot. Yeah, lot.
0: right. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, um, I did it because Read Bottom Up is a, a novel, it's a, a sort of comedy that only takes place, uh, it's told over the course of emails between two friends and their couple uh, their relationship falls apart over the course of about eight months as they're getting bad advice from their respective friends, so it's like a which way book of a relationship, it's sort of torture but fun um, But and so it's very, very girly whereas this book, you know, it's a comedy. And you're
0: talking about the class. Yes, I'm
2: sorry. Yes. And it's, it's funny, but it's really about this group of friends, this time period in life. It has historical research and I just, I didn't want anything distracting from it. And then I just sort of realized that again, I was worried too much and it doesn't matter.
0: Now, did you ever have occasion to overhear a conversation about the book that you had secretly written or about Sky Chatham? Like with people not realizing that that was you Where they're like, Oh, that book is such a piece of.
2: Well, I sh- <laughs> And then you were like, interesting. Mm. I've never had that, but I did have once someone reading I Was Told There'd Be Cake on the subway. They did the thing, it was an actual book where the girl was reading it, sitting across from me, and I was like, this is so great. Um, and then she did that thing where she sort of flipped the binding to see how much farther she had to go. Do oh. you know? And sort of rolled her eyes, and she's like, oh, my God. And kept, <laughs> kept reading it. And I thought... Do I trip her as anyone would?
0: Or do you just quietly slip her fourteen ninety five? Whatever the cover price Here was. There you go. I'm sorry. Well, you're having all the success. I'm glad the people on the subway are keeping you humble. Sloan Crosley, <laughs> the book is the Thank class. You. Go check it out. It's really great. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Live Wire Radio, this week's show brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring food free of hydrogenated fats, artificial colors, preservatives, and sweeteners. Because like you, they only like food in their food. More information at Whole Foods Market. We are coming to you once again from the Wordstock Book Festival here in Portland. And um, because we've got a beautiful, attractive, hyper-literate audience here at the Aladdin Theater, uh, we decided... These are memoir-worthy people, and so we asked them what the title of their autobiography might be if they wrote one. They have submitted them. I have a stack of them in front of me, (laughs) and I'm really rethinking my initial (laughs) opinion of this crowd. Um, uh, Stephanie's book would be called, It Only Looks Like I'm Constantly Drinking. (laughs) Uh, Listener Helen, yes, Netflix. I am still watching. <laughs> Somebody pray for Helen. And um, Mary's memoir would be called Mary C. Matthews. The C stands for lesbian. <laughs> so those are some of the memoirs from our crowd right here at the Aladdin Theater. Hey, if uh, like me you love tiny desk concerts, you can thank our next guest Laura Gibson for that because it was her voice that inspired NPR to start them. Laura's produced four solo records and was called violently adorable by John Oliver. Please welcome Portland's own Laura Gibson to Live Wire.
3: We were damn sure about it And love was a shape in the slippery light A flame on a Moffat moonless night We were damn sure about it strong, rain on cloth on muscle on bone, we were damn sure about it And love was a half-blurred poem, you wrote the creek and the moan of a hardwood floor, we were damn sure about it Damn. Staring at the beaks on the bird face, man Now you're sitting in the kitchen with someone else Stacking up heels of your clementine
0: Gibson right here on Livewire. Hey Laura. Um can uh, can you stick around for like a minute?
3: Maybe maybe a minute. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh so the the um the theme of this episode of the show is changing lanes. And one of the things that we've been trying to do as a show is expand out a little bit musically. Like, we have a lot of, of great stuff, but stuff that's sort of public radio friendly and indie and sensitive, stuff like that. And there are these other radio stations that are just getting huge ratings with different genres of music. I was wondering, would you maybe take a shot at playing some other kinds of music for us? like? Sure. Like, New Country is really popular right now. Do you know what that is? It's like, it's not Willie Nelson. It's more like about trucks and not liking foreigners. Uh, it oh yeah, seems to be the focus of that. Do you know any of that kind of stuff? I
3: think I know, I think I know what you're talking about. I think okay. I've got a song.
0: Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Sounds good so far.
3: At that honky-tonk badonk a junk, Keeping perfect rhythm Make you wanna swing along It's like you going on Like Donkey Kong And if we Shut my mouth Clap your grandma It ought to be a law Get the sheriff on the phone Lord have mercy How'd she even get them bridges on? that honky-tonk
0: donkey donk uh, that was first, that is not where I thought you were going to go with that request and uh, that was amazing and, and slightly uh, upsetting um, another thing that's really making a comeback, at least I've noticed it Blaring out of various Camaros, I pull up next to it. Stoplights is metal, like heavy metal is oh, really yeah. is kind of a thing again. Do you know, like any heavy metal?
3: Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Say your prayers, little one. Don't you forget my son. To include everyone, tuck you in, warm with things, keep you safe from sin till the Sandman comes.
0: Hey, Laura. Laura. Yeah. That's kind of sounds like a lullaby. I don't think that's it's not really what Metallica sounds like.
4: <laughs>
3: well, I'm not done yet.
0: Oh, my bad. My bad.
3: Everland.
0: That was good. Got a little, you could hear the Laura Gibson trademark sound creeping in at the end, but it got pretty, it got pretty metal there for a minute. Um, well, okay, new country, metal. I think the only one that we, we still haven't addressed, and which would really help, because this is huge here in Portland, is R&B. Do you know any R&B at all?
3: have no, a few. Um,
0: okay. Try this one. All right.
3: No, I don't want your number. No, I'm going to give you mine. No, I don't want to meet you nowhere. No, don't want none of your time. No, I don't want no scrub. A scrub is a guy who can't get no up from me. Hanging at the passenger side of his best friend's ride. Time to holler
0: at sea That was really good
3: See, if you can't spatially expand my horizon and That leaves you in the class with the scrubs, never rising I don't find it surprising if you don't have the G's to please me Or bounce me from here, for the coast of overseas So, let me give you something to think about inundate your mind with intentions to turn you out Don't forget to focus on the picture in front of me You as clear as DVD on digital TV screen. Satisfy my appetite with something spectacular Check your vernacular And then I'll get back to you With diamond-like precision Insatiable is what I envision Can't detect acquisition From my friend's expedition Mr. Big Willie If you really want to know Ask Julia Could I be your silly hoe? Not really t bars and all my señoritas Are stepping on your pilas, But you don't hear me, no
0: We just added eight radio stations just in the Portland area. Laura Gibson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
4: We're
0: all about changing lanes, you guys. Hey, you're listening to Live Wire. If you like what you are hearing, maybe you should subscribe to our podcast. All it takes is a click. And you can take us to the gym, Uh, you can take us to the grocery store, you can take us to that assignation at the I-5 Howard Johnson's with the barista you met on Tinder, with the weird eye thing. We don't judge, you do you. Hashtag YOLO and all of the things the kids are saying. Visit LiveWireRadio.org for more information. All right, in addition to serving as uh, Hollywood's go-to for charming nerds in such blockbusters as Zombieland and The Social Network... Jesse Eisenberg has also published three plays, multiple New Yorker pieces, and has now released a book of short stories titled Bream Gives Me Hiccups, which explores everything from the life of a nine-year-old child of divorce and the meals his unstable mother subjects him to, to the impact of one's older sister studying the Bosnian genocide, and what that might do to your dating life. Please welcome Jesse Eisenberg to LiveWire. This book, Dream Gives Me Hiccups, is hilarious and also kind of a takedown of a lot of the elements of modern kind of privileged life, things like yoga and vegetarian restaurants and adults seeking their happiness. Uh, you know, right. maybe when they should be thinking about the happiness of kids. Right. Where, did you set out to address that, or is that just
1: kind of what happened when you started writing? No, I think I'm just surrounded by it. And if you're surrounded by it, you see the hypocrisies inherent in the kind of righteousness. But uh, you guys do that here more, you know, better than anybody. We, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I meant you satirize that as well as I guess promote it. Jesse will be signing books in the back later. If
0: you'd like to punch him,
1: no, no, no. I'm saying uh, you guys satirize that better than anybody oh, on... Oh, on, right. on Orlandia. Yeah, on that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, I, in New York, I'm surrounded less by it. I think by virtue of New York, you know, being kind of probably run by... You know, it's a city of bankers, ultimately, so, we're, you know, we're not surrounded by, you know, vegans that much. There's a lot of steak. Um, but... Uh, Yes, and the stuff I satirize in the book, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with all that stuff, so I have to kind of, you know, find some way to feel superior to it, so I make fun of it. Do you also engage with it, though, to some degree, because it's, like, unavoidable? I can engage with yoga, because I don't, I, I, don't, I don't have a, a flexible body. Um, I come from a family of vegetarians and animal rights people, so I engage with that, but almost reluctantly, because I want to rebel against my family. Um, but I agree with the i agree with the the vegetarian dog, uh, uh, the philosophy um, we're we were raised jewish but now we 're vegetarian um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me do you drink very little almost never
0: because there's a there 's a really great piece in the book called uh Uh, The exact title is a lifelong teetotaler embarrassed by his own sobriety tries to pick up a woman at a bar. And it seemed to come from a real place of of truth and honesty for you.
1: (laughs) Has that ever been your experience? (laughs) Yes, I have noticed that some people, they replace drinking with just knowing about alcohol as though it's the same thing, where really it's the exact opposite thing. Knowing a lot about alcohol is kind of like a neurotic thing to do, and drinking is a relaxing thing to do. But some people confuse those experiences because they both involve alcohol. <laughs> um, there,
0: there's a line in the book which, now having met you and talked to you even out here, I feel that this question does not necessarily need to be asked. But the line in the book that stood out to me uh, was uh, that night, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of uh, nighttime can be really scary if you're
1: worried about something. Are you a generally worried person? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't until you uh, said that I didn't have to ask you this question. That was a kind of mean Um, way to
0: preface that, and
1: I apologize. Yeah, I was feeling fine. Because you you
0: might not be. You play, you you tend to play characters in films who seem to be anxious, but that doesn't mean you're an anxious person. I don't know what you... Did they ever ask Marlon
1: Brando if he was in the mafia? No, we're doing a great art. We don't, you know, I'm not like that at all. (laughs) All right. I had to
0: ask. Uh, We're talking to Jesse Eisenberg. His new book is Bream Gives Me Hiccups. You write about your family in the book. Yeah. uh, And uh, they, they seem to be a lot to take based on their... The way
1: that they're portrayed in the book. Is that how they really are? No, they're, they're normal. But, you know, um, it's not really funny to write about people who are normal. So I kind of, like, take little things about them. Like my dad judging, uh, you know, me taking antidepressants. And I turn him into this kind of, like, you know, horribly suburban, judgmental guy who's never heard of an antidepressant and is disgusted with his son for taking it. Um, and my mother, I turn into kind of, like, yes, an overbearing woman at times. But, you know, this is, like, a kind of trope in humor, I think, that people have been doing forever. Um, maybe since either the beginning of Mothers or the beginning of Humor. Pe- well, but then the, your family sees the book, they read the book, and they realize that,
0: again, the line is blurry of what is Jesse Eisenberg's actual life and what is Jesse Eisenberg humorist. Like, is your sister mad that she comes off as insufferable in the book?
1: You should meet her in person. I've made her better. Um... <laughs> 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 um <laughs> No, you know, <laughs> no, my, my, family, they, my family has a sense of humor. You know, yeah. they know what I'm doing. I, uh, you know, my, uh, my mother's friends will read something and call her and say, how could you let him do that? And she'll say, you know, it's a, a joke. I'm not like that. And then she'll write those people off.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um your sister was
0: known uh, for a period of time when she was younger as the Pepsi girl because she was in these really widely played TV commercials. Right. Uh, she was adorable. Was that weird for you as a kid and for the family? Were people coming up to you constantly during that period of time?
1: Oh, it was the strangest experience you could have. First of all, she was, like, thrust into that accidentally through a series of strange, you know, coincidences, like a lot of kids who become like that are. And then, you know, it's just this strange thing. When there's a child who's recognizable, strangers have the uh, feeling as though they own the kid and that they can go hug it and touch it. You know, with me, people are people's maybe notice me on the street, but no one wants to touch me. Even the people I know don't want to really touch me. Um, but, uh, but for some reason, a cute kid, they feel like the world owns, owns her. Now, she's like a really smart, normal kid, which is like a great miracle. What was
0: it like for you when you were, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people became aware of you in the movie Roger Dodger, uh, which uh, that character seemed to have a lot of similarities to you in terms of being hyperverbal and sort of... Uh, <laughs> Was it
1: weird for you to suddenly be a person who was in the movies and who also people were recognizing? Yeah, yeah it was strange. Uh, The character in that movie was not intended to be that way Um, the character was like a kid from Ohio, the director kept saying, could you do it more like Woody Harrelson and less like Woody Allen and and I said no, watch And um, (laughs) Did you really, did you seriously have that
0: amount of self possession at that age to realize this is a more interesting character if I play it like uh, sort of Jesse Eisenberg as opposed to m- trying to meld yourself into the pre-existing notion of the character.
1: Yes. I had an understanding of what the kind of tone of the piece was. And I have a, I enjoy working with like another uh, man in, in movies where there's like a kind of very clear uh, where there's like a clear relationship, you know? And um, so I have a good sense of where I can fit in, whether I have to be the alpha or the not alpha beta. I have a good sense of how to do those things and where I could fit into it. And that was a good example of that. Um,
0: um, you write in the book about Carmelo Anthony and about sports, and I'm wondering, yeah. are you a sports fan, Yeah. but also as a person who's clearly really bright, you must grapple with the, the obvious meaninglessness of sports and
1: yet how much we sports fans feel it. Well, wait, there's meaninglessness in everything if you decide it's meaningless. Sports can be the most meaningful thing in the world, and I love basketball. I mean, nothing connects me more to, like, other people than basketball. It's this incredibly uh, democratic interest. Anybody could be interested in it. It's, frankly, it's a predominantly urban sport. It's, like, the greatest thing. I'm not watching skiing. You know, it's fantastic. LAUGHTER um, uh, I, I love Be careful, it. half of this audience skied here. Yeah, and I would never watch them. I'm not interested in them. <laughs> Uh, But also, I write about the kind of silliness of it in my book. Um, Like, I have a piece called A Marriage Counselor Tries to Heckle at a Nick Game. And it's this guy who is a marriage counselor who devotes his life to mediating between quarreling parties. And he's trying to root for his home team, but he can't help himself but also encourage the other team to do well. And so (laughs) that's a kind of, uh, that's a, a, a marriage of uh, of those two ideas that you're bringing up, the kind of let's say brut- bruteness of of, of of sports and the kind of um, you know th- thinking of uh, you know somebody who's overly analytical. You you
0: talk about you debriefing your friends about a basketball encounter with Carmelo Anthony of the New York Knicks yeah. and Carmelo describing the experience to his friends. Yeah, it, you guys meet at the Y in this story. W- right. Would you if you saw him at the Y? Would you? in any universe have the guts to, like, challenge him to a game of horse or anything like that?
1: Yes, I would actually think of a longer animal's name and challenge him to that. (laughs) (laughs) Because... because I would not expect to win, nor would I feel bad if I lost. And I would like to play basketball with him. And my friend um, ran into Chris Webber at a gym, um, and he has still—he uh, still talks about that. Now, Carmelo Anthony is even more famous than Chris Webber, and I'm more famous than my friend. And so, my story—yeah, my story w- would be better. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> We're talking to Jesse Eisenberg. He has a new book out. It's called Bream Gives Me Hiccups. We will be back with more. In just a moment, this is LiveWire Radio. Hey, do you live in Portland, or are you traveling our way and you want to find some totally unboring ways to spend your weekend? Maybe you want to read an incisive review of a fire-juggling, Elvis-impersonating trapeze artist-slash-acupuncturist. It's all in Portland Monthly's On the Town newsletter. To get the best of Portland's arts and culture delivered to your inbox for free, go to pdxmonthly.com-slash-newsletters. Welcome back to Live Wire from Portland, Oregon and PRI, Public Radio International. My name is Luke Burbank. It's our Wordstock show and we have Jesse Eisenberg here. He is the author of Bream Gives Me Hiccups and also is known for his work in film. I read that you are going to play Lex Luthor in an upcoming Superman film.
1: Yeah. How, how do they call you and say you'd be great for a sociopathic supervillain? Yes, once again, I'm acting. I don't know how I can further impress this upon you. I'm... <laughs> my, my, my question is, yeah. on any level, is it
0: insulting yeah. when people say, we got to get somebody who seems evil, Eisenberg,
1: he'd be great? No, because, you know, I... Um, no, because it's like, a, that's what makes it challenging. Like, I think they say, you know, we know he's so nice. But wouldn't it be interesting if if this guy we all agree upon being nice plays this other role? Right. Okay, that's fair. Casting against type. Yeah, exactly. More interesting. Um,
0: Well, I just got a a little small taste of it, Jesse, but I want to read from a, uh, a line that the Daily Mail UK wrote. Social network star Jesse Eisenberg has been branded a jerk. After an awkward interview with a blogger, right. the 29-year-old created a rather tense atmosphere for a younger interviewer as he promoted his new film, Now You See Me. Uh, can you explain, for people that don't know, the
1: deep weirdness of the movie junket promotion experience? Yeah, it's a, um, you make a movie, and then a year later, when a movie's coming out, you sit in like a hotel room, and then reporters come in one after the other. They get about five or seven minutes um, to interview But that the one you're referring to was actually a very nice interview with this young woman who then edited the piece and editorialized it to make me look bad. I would be happy to have been a jerk, but in that case I wasn't. Do you wish you could not do those junket interviews
0: if it were if it were possible? Because the sense I get is it's very tiring on the performers. Uh, it's it, The reporters are, they've all been flown in from somewhere and they're mm. trying to Really make an impression in
1: three minutes. <laughs> right. It just
0: seems like a recipe for disaster.
1: No, I don't mind it. I feel so fortunate to like, be in the movie and then get to do that. You know, They say, like, oh, they pay the actors to do the press and the mo- you do the movie for free. And there's some truth to that. The movie is so much fun. I can't believe I get to do it as a profession. It's like the gra- I'm the luckiest person in the world. And then so if that's like, the kind of price to pay, then I'm even further the luckiest person in the world. Because what a great price.
0: Jesse, I have, um, I have some bad news. This has been a great interview, but we are going to be forced to edit it into such a fashion that you sound like a jerk. We've yeah. got to get the clicks. We've got to get the clicks. I'm sorry. Jesse Eisenberg, ladies and gentlemen. The book is Green, gives me hiccups. This is Live Wire Radio. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, with 38 nonstops from Portland and this winter, adding Minneapolis, the birthplace of Prince, Bunt Pans, and the Game of Twister, which coincidentally all came together at a party at Prince's house in 1983. Alaska Airlines keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. We are once again talking to some of the great folks that have been part of Wordstock here in Portland, the book festival, and on that subject, we've asked the audience here at the Aladdin Theater to submit their suggestions they would give for a memoir were they to write one, and uh, we've been sharing those with you throughout the show. Uh, uh, Listener uh, Carrie, uh, her book would be called Ms. Fix-It, Why Can't Anyone Else Do Anything?, (laughs) Ryan's book would be called An Idiot's Guide to Combat How Growing Up Near Detroit Prepared Me for 27 Months in Iraq (laughs) Edgy Regional humor here On this edition of Livewire And uh, Paul's book would be called Not a People Person A Life in Retail (laughs) I think Paul helped me out recently At a store Alright those are our, our Memoir titles from our audience here Please welcome back to the stage the new hip-hop sensation Laura Gibson.
3: This is not escape but i don't know how to hold someone without losing my grip you'll say i was bound to leave since i first stepped across your borders since i crawled to your skin Thought I heard you whisper in the dark that you knew where the light would be Thought I saw your shape against the black Thought I felt you moving beside me We are not alone and we are more alone than we've ever So hurry up and lose me Hurry up and find me again So I'll pass the lumber mills I'll pass the coal mines and the parks And the dried up royal fields a thousand lonely pines that bend their back against the sun But I'll mistake the station birds for the sound of my phone ringing I thought I heard you whisper in the dark that you knew where the light Don't wait for me to walk a straight line You can only hold your breath so long We are not alone We are more alone Than we've ever been So hurry up and lose me Hurry up and find me Bound to you, that when I crossed into your silence, when I held your solitude, but you never liked it when I play dead, and you wondered why my love songs were always the grieving kind, why. For my reflection in the crowd. Oh, forget I said love, and also don't forget I said love. We are not alone, and we are more alone than we've ever. So hurry up and lose me, hurry up and fight me again.
0: laura gibson right here on livewire and that is our show well what do you know about that that was a total blast big thanks to sloan crosley her book is the clasp get your hands on that if you haven't already also uh, laura gibson thank you for (laughs) indulging us and learning the song honky tonk badonkadonk just to amuse us and the folks here in Portland, and uh, Jesse Eisenberg, who is just uh, incredibly friendly and open, and uh, what a great guest. Thanks also to our sponsors who made this show possible, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is our executive producer and co-creator of LiveWire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is also a producer and editor on the show. Our house band is Dave Jorgensen, Jonathan Newsom, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone. Guest writers this show are Bree Pruitt and Ben Coleman. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House Sound by Paul O'Brien. Our recordist was D. Neil Blake. Special shout-out these shows to Amanda Bullock, Andrew Proctor and the fine people over at the Wordstock Book Festival who helped put us in touch with amazing folks like Sloan and Jesse. Thanks also to our marketing director, the inimitable Laura Haddon, our development director Kim Bergstrom, and our operations manager. Lauren Masterson. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find, find people. For more information about the show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, and we will see you next week.
1: P.R.I. Public Radio International.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed